Hello friends and welcome back to Sober Speak. This episode is brought to you by Kim. Kim went to our website, uh, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the donate tab and made a contribution. Thank you so much, Kim, uh, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. I sort of say this buds for you, but I guess that probably would not be quite uh, appropriate. But nonetheless, uh, this episode is for you, Kim. At Sober Speak, you'll find podcasts of men and women sharing their experience, uh, sharing their stories centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. My name is John M. I'm an alcoholic. I'll be the host of this episode. Consider this Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. And Sumera is back with us again by popular demand. And I've asked her to read something that she that is important to her. So I'm going to turn it over to Samara now. She picked out something from the big book. Hi, my name is Samara and I'm an alcoholic. Um, so this reading is from We Agnostics on page 55. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. Thank you so much, Samara. We'll start by talking about that here in just a moment. So we welcome all of your comments. Please remember that. And you can uh, get in touch with us in a couple different ways. You can go to SoberSpeak.com, simply click on the Contact Us tab, or you can uh, email us directly at feedback at SoberSpeak.com. We not only welcome your feedback, but we highly encourage it. SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization. Through our own contributions, we are not allied with a sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Please remember, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want, leave the rest at the curb. Leave the rest at the curbs. All right, so I... I, um, I asked Samara to come back here to the podcast because uh, I just got quite, uh, uh, I got many wonderful comments and, and I enjoyed the conversation myself, frankly. Uh, and so we wanted to come in. So last time we kind of focused on uh, Samara's story and how she got here, but you know, there, there, there's a lot more to share. So I wanted Samara to come back in and, and talk about that. So the first thing I want to do is go ahead and, and talk a little bit with you, Samara, about what you just read. I know that's important to you, and maybe you could talk a little bit about why that is important to you. Sure thing. So, uh, We Agnostics is my favorite chapter out of the big book, and I guess because I, lo- I had a lot of light bulb moments when I read that chapter um, when I was doing my step work on the first go-around, and, um, and this passage, you know... I didn't actually understand a lot of this until probably about a a year or six months ago, especially step three, massively so, what it really meant. And this paragraph that I just read, you know, it says, we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup. Now, what I see with regards to God within AA is how it's worked for others. Like I have seen the hand of God work in people around me, you know, and, um, 
And so sometimes I couldn't see it within myself, but people come up to me and go, wow, you know, there's been a, there's been a real change with you. And it talks about that in the big book, the psychic change. Wait, right. Let's talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit, because there's going to be some people listening to this who possibly have never been to a meeting before, mm-hmm. right? And uh, when you, and I understand what you mean. Mm-hmm. I, I watch people, they come in, mm-hmm. uh, they change, they're different. They're, 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 something happens to their psyche and their personality, when you say that those changes take place and you see the hand of God working in people within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. can you can you explore that a little bit further? Yeah, I mean, I've seen people come in, and even women that I've worked with, just broken, just emotionally a wreck, spiritually bankrupt, and unable to communicate with family or friends or be able to talk about their feelings or just getting really jumbled up, very confused about God and what that means in their life or angry about God. That's the other thing. Confused or angry seems to be the way. But um, (laughs) And so people come in and they're just, you know, at a point where it talks about in the big book, the jumping off point, which is also the entry point to AA. So when you get to a point in your life where you're at, you know, the jumping off point, um, that means that you're ready for AA. So that's what that means uh, in the, at the end of this paragraph. It says, in the last analysis, it is only there that he, capital H, may be found. So what that's talking about is, and what by the time you've come to AA, you've probably been pretty mangled up, <laughs> yeah. right? That's the other word that's used, <laughs> mangled, which I think is brilliant because um, that really conjures up quite an image for me. Um, and so... That's what the last analysis is. You know, it's getting to a point where you are so beaten down Mm -hmm. that you're ready to surrender. And for some people, it takes them coming in and out of recovery to do that. That's not been my journey. It's not, you know, the story that I have, but I've had sponsees that have had that journey and and friends around me, you know. And and at the moment in my group, there is a bit of that where people have gone out to experiment, shall we say. Um, And it's sad. But with regards to seeing when there's a change, you know, being so beaten uh, as people have been when they get in, you see the lights come on and you see smiles come back on their face and they they get to spend time with their children that they haven't seen for God knows how long. They get to have relationships with family members that were very fraught and then and all of a sudden they're able to communicate with them. They're able to call me up and say, you know what, I'm angry today. Mm-hmm. You know, they're able to, I'm able to see them at a meeting and, and I'm, I can ask them, how are you today? And they're like, you know what, I'm going through some stuff, but I'm okay. Right. You know, that's that's magic. And But the other thing is as well, is that they're so selfish and self-centered by the time they get in because it's all about me. <laughs> um, that was my experience. But they start thinking about others and what they can do to be of service to others. Mm. I see them taking the other you know, newcomers to meetings. I see them going to rehabs. And that is a huge change. Someone like me, where everything had to revolve around me, you know, not just the world, but the entire universe. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's not. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. My life isn't about me. Mm-hmm. It's about service to others. And when you see that, you know, after having that experience myself and you see it in others, I mean, if that isn't God working in someone's life, I don't know what is, that's right? right. What, and that's the entire psychic change that it talks mm-hmm. about. That's what that is. And that's wonderful to witness. Very nice. 
You, you know, um, we had some brief conversation you know, in trying to get you scheduled. I, I know that there were some work conflicts and such, and it made me think about your your work and, you know, and, and just in general, kind of mm-hmm. where, you, where you've come from and where you are today, what sort of experiences you've had through work. And I'd also be curious, uh, what was work like before sobriety mm-hmm. and what has work like been after sobriety? So I've been in hospitality 18 years and I ran pubs and bars for, te- you know, over 10 years. <laughs> um, so I started working in a bar when I was 17. Um, and, and then, you know, just, and that's it really. I just quit college and didn't go to university and, and that's what I did. And I just worked from the ground up. And it was one of those things where I kind of, you know, with life, I felt like, and I've said this before, I felt like I was always constantly going into battle. You know, I woke up each day and it was like, right, let's get armored up and get out there, you know? And for me, working and having a career was really important because I didn't go to college. So I had to go out and prove to everyone I didn't need a degree that I could do really well. And also my parents, you know, completely disapproved of, uh, of me doing this. Um, and I was like, well, I'll show them. And when you say doing this, working in hospitality. Yeah, would, yeah just not being, yeah, not being a doctor, <laughs> a lawyer, or an accountant, basically. Uh, not going into academia. Um, and so I, I kind of had to prove it to people. Like, I, you know, I can have a very good career. And so I worked so hard. Uh, and I, I actually went off for... Uh, for seven months, I didn't drink actually, and that was when I was in Southeast Asia, and I was teaching English out there. So I had a bit of a sabbatical from that kind of hospitality trade, and uh, went off traveling, and uh, was a dry drunk as I know it now, uh, and just was crazy. And then, uh, but I did enjoy doing um, doing the teaching side of thing. The aspect of that was wonderful. I really enjoyed seeing people develop Mm -hmm. and get better at something. And so when I got back to England, um, I moved to London. I just upped and left and, you know, because my hometown is in Leicester and I moved two hours south down to London. And um, I got a job working in a restaurant as a manager. And um, I did that job for two and a half years for the time that I was, uh, the the crazy time before I came into recovery. Uh Now, during that two and a half years, I was very good at what I did. Uh-huh. You know, I, I kept on getting promoted. I was given a choice of, you know, what they want me to do. And I got into training um, and I loved it. I got to travel all around the UK um, and I lived out of a suitcase basically for about two years. But also my drinking was done in many cities right. too. So people don't really see the whole extent of my drinking, which is why it just prolonged uh-huh. it though. All that did was prolong when I got into the, the rooms. I may have gotten in a lot sooner if I had actually been working in one place in the same city, but I was doing two weeks there, you know, a month over here, three weeks there. And so people didn't really see it. Um, And then I basically got suspended from work, you know, and that for me was my... Oh, that's right, for for the drinking? For the drinking. And that for me was my rock bottom. Now, it's hard to get suspended from work in the hospitality industry for drinking. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing. It was just, the reason why was... uh, a bunch of alcohol went missing and and quite honestly i can hand on heart say that i was not responsible for all of it some of it but not all of it um and and yeah i just was a nightmare when i went to open this restaurant in a little village called chichester and i just you know and i just remember that was my last drunk as well you know it was just a nightmare it was absolute nightmare and um and 
I got a phone call from my boss when I got back to London and he goes, Samara, I need to have a word with you. Like, we need to have a chat. And I was like, oh my God, the game's up. Yeah. You know, I, I just, that's when I was like, that's it. They know, they know, mm-hmm. they know, they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was expecting the worst and uh, I just knew it was going to be really, really bad, whatever it was. I go into this meeting mm-hmm. and my boss who... Uh, you know, I'd been drinking with anyway. Like we used to go out when we went to other cities and hang out. Um, so he knew that I, I was a drinker, but you know, he just was, he was horrified, I think about my behavior that he'd heard even for him. And he's a heavy drinker, (laughs) you know, but he just says, I'm sorry, Samara, we've got a new CEO in the company. It's out of my hands. And I said, okay. And he goes, well, you're suspended. And I thought, Oh, bugger, you know, (laughs) and, um, and here's the thing, it, the, the thing that really hurt was not like me being suspended, but what he said to me after that. And he said, off the record, Samara, you know, you are such a lovely girl. Why do you keep on effing things up? Mm. And I, I had no response to that. Mm. I had absolutely no response, but I understood what he meant. I was like, yeah, why do... And I had to ask myself right. that question. I was why like, yeah, why do I keep on messing them, things up? You know, I don't know. And that's when, you know, I called up a friend and he 12-stepped me, got me into the program. That So that conversation with my boss happened on the Thursday. I go into recovery the next day on Friday. On Saturday, I get a sponsor. And then that week, I started working the steps. Gotcha. So this has been my first thing to try, you know, to try and uh, deal with this issue that I had zero idea I had, <laughs> right? I had zero idea I was an addict of any form, right? And then I go to my first meeting. I'm like, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic who knew um and I was like all right then cool what do I need to do they're like get a sponsor I was like all right then um and I did that but then I didn't work so uh, oh yeah here's the other thing so I get suspended from work right pending investigation uh and I was like oh this is gonna be bad so you know what I'm just going to quit yeah uh so I I called my boss up on the Monday and I said look mate I'm in recovery now And uh, I quit. And he goes, yeah, it's probably for the best because it's not going to look good. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, And so I quit the job. And for the first three months of my recovery, man, I had a blast. I had my Oyster card. Uh, which is oh. an Oyster card is this card that you use to tap in and out to go on the bus and uh, and to go on the tube and you pay like a the, monthly the tube is a, yeah. the subway right yeah the subway yeah. what yeah. you call the subway yeah, right. um, <laughs> and so you pay like a monthly thing on it and you can just you know go anywhere it's called uh, an Oyster card yeah it's called an Oyster I don't even know why it's called anyway <laughs> I should probably I should probably research that. Um, so you know, I had this Oyster card, and I had a where to find. So it was basically a, a meeting schedule for all of London, and I just would go, "What day is it? Monday," and then put like put in a pin in a map where I was like, "Right, that's the meeting I'm going to," and I just go. I was like, oh, "This is interesting," and then go to an afternoon meeting, that's try right. a meditation meeting, twelve step meetings, newcomer meetings you know, gay meetings, lesbian meetings, all like all of them. I just went to all of them. I was like, let's, let's try this out. Do they um, separate gay and lesbian meetings? No, it's, it's, it's actually gay slash okay, lesbian meetings. Okay, I'm just meeting. making sure. Right? Um, and then, yeah, and I went to like late night meetings at like 10 p.m. I went to like Rise and Shine kind of 5, 6 a.m. meetings. And, you know, and it was just, I just had the time of my life. I saw mm. more of London in those first three months than I did for the two and a half years prior mm. to me moving, you know, and, uh, I had a I had a great old time, and then 
I started looking for a job because I was like, well, I can't be penniless in, in London. I'll, be, I'll definitely be out on the street. Um, and so I started looking for a job. And, and what was interesting, actually, was that before I was driven mainly by money and, and prestige, you mm-hmm. know, um, and power. Like, how, how quickly can I get to the top? Like, what, you know, what is the movement up there? But that's not how I looked at this next job. You know, I still wanted to stay in the kind of learning development and training kind of side of things. Um, and this opportunity, well, actually, it's really interesting what happened. This is really funny. The first job I got in London was to a recruitment company. And I kept a really good rapport with the guy that got me that job. His name's Rory, such a nice guy. And I'm getting off the bus from going to an AA meeting, right? I'm going to an AA meeting, sorry. And I get this phone call and it's Rory. And I was like, oh, because I've forgotten I'd saved his number. And he goes, hey, Samara, I heard you're looking for a job. And I was like, oh my God, how did you know? And he goes, yeah, I've got the perfect job for you. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, come see me. I'll talk about it. But, you know, let's let's get you in. I was like, uh, okay. Um, and prior to that, I mean, I went through a different agency and I had loads of interviews and, you know, and they said to me, they go, look, you know, because of going into training, you might have to take a step down and then work up. And I was like, that's okay. I'll do it. <laughs> you know, and I was, I was humble enough to be able to go, that's fine. I do not mind doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I interviewed really well with so many companies and a lot of them were like, got these job offers and stuff and but I waited to go to this job that this guy Rory had recommended anyway I go through their interviewing process and every time like before I went into an interview right every single time I would pray and I would ask God to direct me and I said God if this is the job that you want me to have I trust you where can I be of maximum service how can I help others that's all I asked for I didn't uh, ask about money. I didn't care about like, you know, where I would go in the company. I just asked God, where would I be most useful? And that was it. And so I then uh, go and do the last interview at this company. And um, and I, was, I said, thank you so much for the opportunity for, for me to come and interview with you. Um, I do hope I hear back from you. And then I walk out of there. And the first thing I did was go straight to a meeting. So I went to a meeting. And um, I came, and I just was like full of gratitude because this meet—it was a gratitude meeting, funnily enough. So I came out of there, I was like, "Life's good." I mean, I got all these interviews, and I felt good about all of them. And you know, wherever God's gonna take me is—I'm—I'm I'm cool with that. And I get this phone call from Rory, and he goes, "Guess what, Samara?" I was like, "What?" And he goes, "You got the job." And that was a training role where it was international travel, uh-huh. and so I was like, "Wow, I did." <laughs> he goes, "Yep, you got it," and I was like okay, well, this is great. Um, and what is wonderful about that job is that I actually got to do stuff that I wasn't uh, able to do in my previous job because I was traveling so much and I got to do more things like, you know, learning and development and really being able to spend time with people and developing them and their skills and where they were lacking. And I was like, I felt useful and I was training people new skills and I watched them blossom and see them develop into managers. And it was amazing. And then I got to travel with that company. I went to India for a month to open up a restaurant there. And wow, I worked, so what's it, what kind of restaurant do you... Do you it was a Chinese dim sum restaurant. Chinese what? Dim sum. Wait, I'm sorry. I think it? you... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think what they call them in here, but it's basically dumplings. Oh, yeah, so steamed dump- dumplings. Okay. Yeah, that's called dim sum. Gotcha, dim sum. Okay, mm-hmm. so so they have... And, and as though... 
I'm just curious how that works from an international perspective. You go in there to, is it a, uh, so it's a Chinese restaurant yeah. opening in India. India. Yeah. And well, there's a lot of people with a lot of money there and they like international foods and gosh. they travel a lot. That's why. And so it was in an area where it was predominantly kind of office people and it was uh, people with a lot of money, okay, basically. Gotcha. And it was there was a new development and that's where they opened it. But it was actually a franchise. So uh, the franchise company, you know, had a few things under their belt and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's do a Chinese do some restaurant. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, and so I went, I got the... What was your experience like over there? I mean, it was great. Know. Okay, so obviously I know the language and I know the culture, right? Yeah. Being half Indian. And so I was able... I, but I didn't let the staff know that I could speak Hindi. I would just listen to them. Oh. And they... Because they weren't sure either. They thought maybe she's maybe. one of those that was born there and doesn't know the language or the culture. Who knows? You know, she's like more British than she is Indian. And I would just sit there very quietly listening to their conversations in Hindi and uh, towards the end of my time there I would answer them like they would say something and I'd answer in Hindi and they're like oh no oh my god she knows all this time she knew I was like yeah suckers um anyway but my time there was incredible um I mean I had a a work colleague there was a team of us there uh and I was heading up the team and one of the women there was that that came with me she was angry angry because she wanted the job that I had and so I had a lot of conflict with her and a lot of pushback and what I ended up doing I was like on the phone to my sponsor most days and she goes Samara you need to be kind and loving it will you know you just do your job you'd be you've been put there to do a job Uh right you're getting paid for just do it and I know it's going to be difficult because you're away from home and by this point I'm like eight months sober eight and a half months sober and she goes but you know you'll get through this God will help you through it and so when I was in my hotel room I'd listen to speaker tapes and you know I'd be texting my friends from back home I would if I had any spare time to be able to go I would go to meetings I picked up my nine-month chip there so they had had meetings obviously yeah they had meetings but they they were but they were all male Really? Well, in that culture, I mean, being an alcoholic is a taboo anyway, and coming out and saying you're an alcoholic. But then also drinking as a woman even is just like, there's a no-go. Like, you don't do that. Like, that's not what women, you know, they stay at home, they make babies, and they cook and they clean. That's it, (laughs) right? So very patriarchal kind of like, you know, country, right? And 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 so women being alcoholics is like so unheard of. Really? They are there, they exist, right. but not coming out and saying, hey, I'm an alcoholic, <laughs> you know, openly like I do. Right. You know, so pre- most of the time I was like the only, in fact, bar one meeting and only because she was an Al-Anon member, because it was an open meeting, every meeting I went to was male. <laughs> I was the only woman there. And I would share... Were they accepting? Yeah, they they were fine. They didn't care. Right. Um, They just thought it was cool. They're like, oh, wow, she's from England. And, you know, um, and then I would share in Hindi and it just kind of came naturally. It's not like I went, okay, I'm going to share in Hindi because they were speaking in English. Some would share in English. Some would share in Hindi. And, uh, but I shared, I would share in Hindi. And um, it was just, it was an amazing experience to have that. And what I did, I got my nine month chip there and it was the most adorable thing. So they, they had, uh, they didn't have, you know, the, uh, the kind of the, the monthly chips, which is made out of that. I think it's a titanium or something, but, uh, they didn't have those. They had the bronze ones. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have any monthly chips. So what they did was get like this white kind of marker and just like scrubbed out 
whatever year it was and then wrote in pen nine months on the chip oh, and I still cute. have that chip to this day because <laughs> it's my great. favorite one but it was so sweet they're like here you go here's your nine month chip and I was like oh you guys are so cute <laughs> um, so I, that <laughs> so I got that chip that you know that was an incredible experience right. uh, so I got to do that and um, I went to Dubai with work and I got to go to meetings in Dubai now Dubai is another kind of patriarchal type of uh, yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah it really is so were there any did you go to meetings it was I well okay so this was a different altogether kind of style so in India the meetings were only Indian people Mm -hmm. right there weren't any kind of expats or anything like that all Indian but bearing in mind that I went to a lot of expats yeah so people that were from a different country that had moved there and emigrated there okay gotcha Um, a lot of the time it's for work but um the expatriates is that what that sounds for yeah okay gotcha and so um and so the Indian people that were there that I mean the meetings that I went to were definitely low level like I went to a lot of slums gotcha where I went to meetings which I loved. Right. Um, and then the meetings in Dubai were not like that. They were high end. Yeah. People that were ex- expats and, or, you know, they'd moved there because their husbands, you know, got a job, a fancy job, and they're living in these high rises, you know, um, all these like huge mansions. And so it, they were kind of more, uh, a, more of a different vibe. So the vibe was different, but, you know, Essentially, it was the same. It was just like being at an A meeting, right? It's right. just that the people were different, right. but the meeting was still there. The AA meeting, you know, and the message was still there. Right. Um, so that was an interesting experience yeah. too. And Dubai is like, it's just a soulless city, really. It's just a city raised from the desert. So yeah. it's it was fascinating being there. Um, but yeah, the meetings are different there. So I got to do that. That was fun. And... Um, and yeah, the job is like so. And, and once again, back to the there's mm-hmm. a but there weren't women in those meetings. In the du- right? no, in Dubai there were because it was predominantly. Oh yeah, because yeah. that's where you said. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, so there was a lot of people from England, Australia, a lot of British people actually. I met a, a lo- at, here's oh here's another crazy thing. I was sponsoring a girl in London, and her mother uh, was actually living in Dubai. But when I started sponsoring her, I didn't, you know, at this point, I didn't know I was going to go to Dubai. And I got chatting to her and, and she goes, and, you know, she told me that her parents actually live in Dubai and she's a student here in, in London. That's where they're originally from, is from London. And then I said to her a few months later, I was like, guess what? I'm going to Dubai for work. She goes, oh my gosh, do you know where? And I was like, zero idea. When I get the details, I'll tell you. She goes, I'll give you my mother's details. So I got to Dubai and then met her mother and she took me to meetings. Wow. Yeah, so random, so random. But there we go, right? Made the connect- and it was like it's just this girl that I'm sponsoring, and her mother happens to live in Dubai. And a few months later, I go to Dubai. Um, so that was good. I enjoyed that a lot. Well, good. Um, so I, you know, just for those who who didn't hear last time. By the way, uh, if you haven't heard uh, Samara's uh, entire story, she is on. Not to say entire story. Her first episode, uh, it's called episode number nine, is called From Islam to Road of Recovery. And I don't want to go across the entire thing again, but just in general, tell people where you were born, where you came from. Um, 
Gosh, it's such a long story and such an exciting story. Uh, but uh, tell people where you were, where you came from, and give them an idea of your background. Just that obviously okay. you have an accent. Yes. You're from, you're not from Texas, no. which is where we're recording Someone it. thought I was Scottish the other day, and I was like, you've never met a Scottish person <laughs> in your entire <laughs> life. Get out. Um, so... I'm first generation born in England. I was born in Leicester in the East Midlands, which is right in the center of England. And then I spent the last six years before I moved to Texas um, in London. And actually, I will have been in Dallas two years next week on Friday, on May the 4th, which mm. is natu- National Star Wars Day. Um, National was Star, Star Wars? Wars Day. Are yeah. you a Star Wars fan? Maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Um, and so I've been here for two years now almost. And uh, my background, uh, I was brought up as a Muslim and, you know, uh, and basically went in the wilderness for a while with regards to how I felt about Islam. And um, my parents, my father is from Karachi uh, in Pakistan. My mother was born in India, but grew up in Africa in Malawi. And then when she was 11, moved to England. And then my dad moved to England when he got married to my mother in 1981. I have one older sibling. He was born in 82 and I was born in 83. Um, so mom has been in England for a lot longer. And um, I, yeah, raised in England. And I got married to someone from Texas, which is why I'm here. Yeah. Gotcha. But, yeah. Gotcha. That's, and then, um, oh yeah, with the whole... That side story, <laughs> the big thing. So I, you know, the my parents, marriage, yeah, right. the, the arranged marriage. Right. Uh, well, the forced marriage, right. uh, where my parents tried to get me married off in Pakistan, and I managed to get out with the help of uh, Amnesty International and right. the British Embassy. Right. Um, I was out there for ten days in total, and came back, and um, and that was when I was eighteen, and I didn't get into the rooms until I was twenty nine. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear that entire story, which is absolutely incredible, I don't want to go through the whole thing again, but like I said, it is on uh, episode number nine there. You can go back and listen to that. So what we didn't really get a chance to do last time, mm-hmm. uh, and it's my fault, <laughs> I don't know if it's my fault, it's just, it was my, like I've said before, with these particular podcasts, I usually have one question that I want to start with, and then I just go where my curiosity takes me. Mm-hmm. And you had a lot of things I was curious curious about, uh, and so we never really got around to to the steps and kind of mm-hmm. walking through the steps. And there's yeah. no way we're going to make it through all twelve of them here again in the time we have remaining. But let's try to get through maybe steps one, two, three, mm-hmm. uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll see we'll see if we even make it that far. Okay, we'll sure take it thing. a seven time. Yeah. So when you think about step one, right? We admitted we we're powerless over alcohol; mm-hmm. that our lives have become unmanageable. Um, what comes to mind for you? Uh, what are your memories of that? What was it like coming in? What does it mean to you now? Yeah, there's a lot of things in um, Bill's story which ring true. I mean, I wish I could quote them all, but I won't. And, you know, as I said, I didn't realize I had a problem uh, until my first meeting. And... Um, and so be- you kind of caught alcoholism once you came to the Yeah, party, basically. Right? I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, now we have a name. We can, <laughs> and there's apparently a solution. Let's deal with it. Um, so really, like, you didn't, like, you, you just thought you were a partier? You really didn't? Yes, uh-huh. honestly. I thought I was living the dream. I thought everyone did this. <laughs> 
I'm not joking. I just thought, don't we all just party this hard? Don't we all just do a bunch of coke off the kitchen table and then dance on the, you know, bar? Like, mm, no, Samara. No, we don't. It's like... Do we not wreck all our relationships and leave carnage? Are we not all social hand grenades? Um, <laughs> they were like, no, Samara. Um, social hand, hand grenade. grenade. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's it. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I had zero idea. But it's not until I started, we started picking through the steps and um, that it started to come apart and I could really see... You know, here's the thing, it's that unmanageability, that word, right? Um, which I think definitely for women that I sponsor, some of them find mm-hmm. that word confusing, mm-hmm. that our lives have become unmanageable. Um, and it, and here's the, the key word, has, had become unmanageable, you know? And so I didn't really know what that meant until I started reading, especially, you know, the story of the jaywalker and the milk and the whiskey. Yeah, so, you know. well, and for those who are listening who may not know those stories, just real quickly, go, go over both those stories. Yeah, so the story of the jaywalker is essentially that the simple version of it is that he keeps on running in front of, like, a moving vehicle and keeps on breaking body parts, goes back into hospital heels and then carries on doing it again. The, mis- the, the, the whiskey, sorry, in the milk was that this guy, you know, he's got a great job, seemingly a lovely life and, you know, uh, family, goes off to go, you know, he's a car salesman, goes off to uh, look at a car, I think it was, pick it up. And on the way, you know, oh, I fancy, fancy a sandwich, a bit hungry. Fancy and then, a sandwich. And then he goes, he goes into this, like, diner, has a sandwich and goes, well, you know, I mean... You know, I've got this glass of milk. He goes, oh, I, I, I mean, on a full stomach, the whiskey's not going to hurt, right? right? So he thinks, I'll just put it in my milk. And then um, has it, oh, I'm fine. Look, I'm okay. Everything's fine. Has another, I'm fine. Has another. And then we all know what happens at right. the end, right? And uh, because that was basically my drinking. I'm fine. It's okay. It's just one. And then 20 drinks in and you're like swinging from a lampshade. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's happened. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it reminds me of the lyrics of that Billy Joel song. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Which one? Big Shot. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. To be a big shot. Yeah. That's, you? yeah. Uh-huh. He's one of us. Um, and so... You know, what that, those stories really taught me was that, and what I could read through that and relate to was that the insanity of it and how it just, it can be so sudden and um, the obsession and the craving can kick in so, so quickly that you get to that space, especially the whiskey and the milk one. I was really like, because when I first read that, I was like, oh, that kind of doesn't make sense. He's a bit of a weirdo. But then, <laughs> but then when I read it with my sponsor and we kind of like, she go, she started asking me questions. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have done that. I have physically, like, I may have not put whiskey in the milk, but I have woke like I've gone to brunch and had like you know a bloody Mary and said could you put an extra vodka in that it's okay because we're in a situation where we're having like food and it's like with friends and and then it got out of control and before you know it daytime drinking happens right except you're the only one doing the daytime drinking everyone (laughs) else seems to be fine and you're passed out at about three o'clock in the afternoon um on the kitchen floor so (laughs) you know that the other thing was uh, in Bill's story, where it says liquor ceased to be a luxury; it became a necessity. You know, so 
like my friends would, you know, when I'd go out with them and they'd go, oh, let's have a glass of champers, you know, let's have a bit of champagne to celebrate. And I'm like, great, let's get six bottles. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like, no, just... No, just, just a little yeah. bit, you know, and there'd be like 10 of us and they go, let's get a bottle of champagne. And I'm like, that's enough for like two people. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? You know, and it's just, it's not a luxury, is it? Mm. Because a luxury item is something that you have very, very rarely. You enjoy it when you have it. Um, it's something that you're like, you'll take your time over and it's like this nice thing. You'll savor it. Right. Right. No, that's not what alcohol is for me. It's an assess. I need this drink like I need it you know that's how I acted around alcohol which is insane that kind of thinking is absolutely insane I remember doing (laughs) I remember talking to my first sponsor and um it was so funny because she she recalled a story about um this episode of sex in the city that she'd watched and how one of them was having, she was moping in her apartment and the other three came over with a bottle of, you know, wine or something or champagne. It could have been champagne, whatever it was, bottle of alcohol. And just for those listening, Sex in the City is a, a television show. Yeah, from back uh, in the day. Yeah, most people will recognize it, yeah. but just in case. Basically four women living in New York. That's yes. all it's about. Right. Um, and so the three friends come over and they've got this bottle of alcohol, wine or champagne or whatever. And, I, and she goes, yeah, and I did the maths. I was like, one bottle four people how is that going to work you know and I said oh my goodness I watched that same episode and thought the same thing years ago you know and so the it was there I just had no idea that that's what that was that that was obsession around drinking that that was alcoholism that that's what I do naturally as an alcoholic you know I had no idea I thought I was like yeah how are you gonna get drunk you know but that's not gonna work um, and so when she uh, when she pointed that out, I thought, oh, that makes sense. The other thing that my uh, <laughs> my sponsor pointed out, which I always think is hilarious, and whenever I say this, I can see everyone in the room going, oh. So day so morning drinking, right? And uh, I have some people, you know, that I've sponsored, and they're like, yeah, you know, I didn't really do morning drinking, you know, that wasn't my thing. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell you. Uh, ask a question uh, which my sponsor asked me and that is this have you ever gone out drinking stayed up all night and you're still drinking at 9am <laughs> and you haven't gone to bed they're like yeah I was like that's morning drinking <laughs> and it floors everyone every time because when she said that to me I was like oh my goodness I did the morning drinking too um, and she's like um, yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Just because you didn't go to sleep doesn't mean it's not classified as morning drinking. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, okay, fine. Thanks for that. Um, the other thing that I like in Bill's story, it, um, I think I read this before, but so this is this is like towards the end, like when and you know when I was talking earlier on about the last analysis. Right. So is this feeling particularly so on page six of Bill's story, the remorse, horror and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. So, you know, hopelessness and horror and remorse, what words to use, right? Out of all of the words, you know, that that Bill could have used that, I think is like, absolutely sums up how I felt towards the end of my drinking. You know, I had, um, 
I had times where I would, before I go to sleep, I'd go, you know, I hope I don't wake up. Right. And then there were times where I would wake up and I'd go, oh my gosh, another day. Yeah. You know, that's how bad it got that I couldn't even bear to live anymore. You know, but then I didn't have the courage to also commit suicide, right? And so I was stuck in a rock in a hard place. I had to just simply exist. I just had to simply be miserable because this is this is what life is, right? This is this is right. This is normal, isn't it? Being miserable like this, um, and I just didn't see any way out. You know, and I felt like I was in a glass box where I was looking out at other people and they seemed happy, you know, and they seemed to live full lives. And you know what used to confuse me is like people that got married and had kids. I know that sounds really weird, but I would see friends of mine get married, have kids, you know, buy a house, have kids, you know, get a mortgage or whatever. And I would go, how do you do that? Like, how, how are you able to... Stand that person enough to buy a house with them, make that big commitment, and have kids with them. Right, and then and make take the, care of kids. Yeah, I'm like... And the responsibility. I couldn't get it because I couldn't forge relationships with people. I, I didn't know how to do I was absolutely incapable of doing it. And um, th- this, uh, this bit where it says that there was a terrible sense of impending calamity, that's exactly how I felt when I got that phone call from my boss saying, hey, we need to talk, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, calamity. I remember a speaker uh, beautifully uh, kind of describing what calamity is. And he said that, imagine if you got, if you got a brain surgeon to implant a me- like a speaker into your brain and you, and, and you played it loud and everyone could hear what you were thinking. <laughs> Goes that's calamity, and I was like, oh wow, yeah, that's mm-hmm, that's me. That there's there's all this like I feel like there's twenty different people up here in my head, uh, you know, and and they and that's it. I've heard people say that you know the committee wakes up before I do, you know, because it is like that. It's like there's a group of people up in there making decisions, and I'm I'm not involved. I'm like I'm at the table. I've got a seat, but I have zero idea what's going on. So, but, um, and that's exactly how I felt, you know, it just, uh, I didn't feel like I was in control of my life. And the only time I did feel like I was in control was when I was using, which makes zero sense to someone who's normal. Correct. Zero sense. It's just like, when I have friends that are like, Ooh, I'm feeling it now. I'm getting a little bit tipsy. And I'm like, okay. And then she was, ah, that's, that's enough. And I'm like, what? (laughs) that's that's just getting started you know um that's not normal (laughs) so that's an alcoholic trait um and these are these little things that i would learn as i was uh going through step one i was like i like i said you know i had no idea i had a problem i had no idea uh about all these little experiences that i had and the stuff that was going on uh, you know in my head and how i would feel was alcoholism that's what that was and um you know my my sponsor here in the u.s i've got i when i got five years sober i got a sponsor here in in dallas which is you know one of the best things that i've done actually is to have someone close to me um and you know she's she's incredible woman and um and she says to me you know the there's the drinking is not an option that's it drinking is just not an option that should be off the table Mm -hmm. right you just don't drink 
And um, and when I first came in, I didn't get that. I didn't really understand, you know, because I would hear it a lot and, and it was a bit of a mantra, but I was like drinking. I, and I don't know why I didn't understand it, but ultimately, you know, the, my one of my favorite sayings is that, um, you know, if a train hits you, it's not the eighth carriage that kills you. It's the yeah. first carriage. Right just like we're drinking. So it's that first drink. As soon as I pick up that drink, the mental obsession begins. Did you struggle with the word powerless? I kind of struggled with that a little bit. I don't know why. You know, I have to be honest. There's a lot of stuff that I fully didn't understand, Mm -hmm. but I still plowed on through my steps. Right. And, you know, they will talk about in the 12 and 12 that you have to do the first step fully and completely. Mm. That's the only one you have to do 100%. But that really was not my experience, if you will. Mm -hmm. In other words, as I worked through the steps and I got everything down in the fourth step and the fifth step, that's really when it came to fruition for me of saying, yeah, you know, I am one. Uh, Now I see it. Uh, more clearly than I ever had. Yeah. So I just, I'm like you, I just kept plugging away. Yeah. I kept going through the process. And I still, in some respects, you know, have to uh, 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 re-examine or reconsider uh, my powerless over alcoholism Mm. because, you know, I've been doing this for a few days and uh, I see people with uh, the amount of sobriety that... Uh, all across the board, yeah. they end up going back out. Mm-hmm. So you still have to look at that. Yeah, and you know, I think for me is, uh, I just kept it simple. I didn't overthink it. I didn't mm-hmm. analyze things. I didn't try and study it, overstudy yeah. it, overread it. Hmm. You know, my my sponsor gave me the work and said, right, uh, look at all this, and then you know, get back to me. I would call her up. I said, right, I've done this. She goes, okay, let's meet up. Would read over the passage. She would ask me, okay, so what did you write down? And I was like this and, you know, and, and then she would question me and go, you know, when, if there was something I was unsure of, she would just ask a few questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the whole thing about the, the morning drinking. That's how that came to light. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> all these moments. Um, here we go. So this, okay. So this other, this small paragraph, this is in uh, page 18. There is a solution. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Um, And so, you know, the solution, here's the thing. I didn't understand what the solution was when I I was working through the steps in early sobriety. and what I mean by that is 10, 11, and 12, right? When you get to that point, because you work through these steps and you, you know, it's suggested that you do a yearly house cleaning um, and, and kind of work through the steps again. Um, but 10, 11, uh, and 12 are for life. And so the solution is this. Ultimately, the solution is clean house. And then, you know, uh, it's also... The, the kind of three sides of the triangle, service, unity, and recovery, prayer, meditation, inventory, right? And then and then turn to others, like help other people. Right. The solution is in other people right. and in God, mm-hmm. you know? And all this time, like with drinking, that was my source of power, 
you know, you know, I could dance better. I was more attractive. I was better and funnier and wittier. And, you know, all those things that people talk about that made them better, whatever it was, it made you better at whatever blank blank it was, you know? And so that was my power source. And so I kept on going back to it. Of course I was. And that's why, and, and therefore, really, I was powerless over alcohol because it then became, as it says in the big book, my master, mm-hmm. king alcohol, mm-hmm. you know? And so it ruled me because I was now at its feet. So we take away the drink, right? But then what? Where's the power source? How are you going to fill that vacuum? God is the power source, right? Oh. The alcohol was something that obscured the channel to God. You take away that, you unblock that by going through the steps. You unblock all of that, especially in step four. And um, and in step three, you invite God in. Step four, you get to clean all of that wreckage of, you know, of your past and unblock this path that you, you know, it's obscured to God. And then in six, you, re- um, you know, it's a reaffirmation of step three, right? And so what ends up happening is, is that the power source then becomes God as it's always supposed to have been. And then what ends up happening is I become useful, I'm not useless, right. you know. I become a child of God so I can help his children. And that's the solution. You know, God is the solution to like all my problems. And I ask him for help and guidance. And then I say, right, where can I be of service now? Where do you want me? So right. you, can, you can deal with this, God, because you're bigger than anything I know, right? right. And so that's the solution. Um, but obviously when I came in, did I know that? No. <laughs> was like, all I knew was that I had to do the steps, yeah. right? But I didn't understand the enormity of those steps in my life yeah. and how that I'd need to do this every day. That's what I didn't understand with regards to the solution. Right. Very nice. Well, you know, Samara, when we are talking time flies. Uh, it absolutely flies. And, uh, and I mean that in a positive way. Uh, you're very intriguing. So uh, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, close this out now here mm-hmm. real quick. And um, we got through step one, I think. So now we've been through your story. Uh, bits and pieces wow. of your story in step we... one, but we always seem to, <laughs> but we're we're hitting on the steps in, in some. I'm gonna have to come back another eleven times. That's right. Now. <laughs> How well, are you for next month? Right. Eh? That's right. Well, <laughs> hopefully, both of us will be alive a long time, and we can do that. So, um, once again, we welcome your thoughts and feedback. Uh, please contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com. We want to make this a dialogue. I want to hear from you. So. Uh, you can share your experience, your strength, your hope, and or provide comments or suggestions. Uh, I thank you in support for whatever, uh, I thank you for your support in whatever form that comes in, whether it be sharing the podcast with your friends or just listening in as you are able. We realize we know only a little, and I'm going to read something here from page 164 of the big book uh, to close us out. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. You will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. 
Once again, Samara, I'm not exactly sure how you, I mean, I know how you ended up here in Dallas, but I'm glad that God brought you here to the Dallas area (laughs) so we could have these podcasts. Thank you again for coming in. Thank you. Bye-bye now.